Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Before I introduce the guest for today, I wanted just to announce that I found out, actually, that uh, we have a really high ranking and it is in a wonderful place. It is in Ukraine. I am so happy to know that our show is offering whatever it can offer to people who are in places like Ukraine, where I'm sure they're feeling a lot of strain and needing a lot of support and understanding really the brunt of when you're dealing with people and with governments and with places in the world where there is groupthink, where there are people who are going to be thinking that they have the right to kind of claim your space, your life, your rights. And I am very happy to know that people of Ukraine, a place that is near and dear to my heart from my family history, is able to feel linked in some emotional or political or psychological or sociological way to this podcast. Of course, as always, we offer you our support during this very difficult time. And we've had a guest on twice, Olga, who talked about what it's been like to be there, to be also trying to monitor and be in charge of all of the disinformation and misinformation that is being put out. So sending our support, sending our love to people in that part of the world and in every part of the world that is suffering at the hands of others. Thank you to all of our listeners who are tuning into a very special two-part episode. Today, as well as next Wednesday, I'll be speaking with author Daniel Barbin Levin, who has previously come on the show to discuss his excellent memoir, Slonim Woods 9, about his experience getting into, surviving, and getting out of the now infamous coercive control group that began at the Sarah Lawrence College. Joining Daniel this time will be Felicia Rosario, who was also a survivor of the group's master manipulator, Larry Ray, a father of one of the students, who thankfully is now serving a jail sentence of 60 years for his many awful abuses. Both Felicia and Daniel are featured in the new Hulu documentary, Stolen Youth, Inside the Cult at Sarah Lawrence. The film's director, Zachary Heinzerling, had reached out to me and my colleague Dan Shaw in the early stages of production to get a better sense of how to ethically portray this story from a perspective that was respectful of the survivors and not re-traumatize them in the process. There are many media opportunities that I decline because I can tell which direction they're going, and I don't think they're going to be sensitive and kind and thoughtful and mindful of the people most harmed by these experiences. We had met regularly for some time, and I'm happy to say that his work can now be seen by the public and viewed in such a way as to provide the audience with a nuanced understanding of how anyone can get sucked into a manipulative, high-control group 
The film, which is available now for streaming, offers striking firsthand interviews with conman Larry Ray's victims and incorporates personal audio tapes and video recordings to tell the story of his grim 10-year influence over a group of young people. The series follows the story from the cult's origins in 2010 on the Sarah Lawrence campus until its recent demise when the last members find their own paths to survival. I was happy to be able to have an extended and gripping conversation with Daniel and Felicia, and I'm excited to share the first half of our conversation with you today. Here are Daniel and Felicia now. I am so happy and honored to have Daniel and Felicia with me today. Daniel, I know you've been on the show before when, you know, your book was coming out and it was like really a very kind of moving time, I think, for you to just be starting to talk. And now you've had more experience, but each time I know it means getting into the feelings, getting into the memories, which I know is not easy. So I really appreciate you coming on and wanting to talk some more to our audience now with this show out on Hulu, which we will definitely talk about. And Felicia, I want to say that when I was talking to Renee, the media person, and she was saying, I'd love to have some of the people who were in this group on your show. I said, I would love to have Daniel back because I we like to have guests come back to talk about how it's been since then and what experiences they've had or insights they've had. And if it's possible, can I talk to Felicia? I was really struck by her story, her trajectory. So this is perfect. And um, so welcome to, to both of you. So Daniel, can you just reintroduce yourself to the listeners? And then Felicia, I'll give you a chance to do the same. Sure. Thank you so much for having us. I'm Daniel Bourbon Levin. As you mentioned, I wrote Sloan Woods 9 and um, was a part of this coercive control group, which is featured in the Hulu documentary Stolen Youth, which came out on February 9th. Okay. And for you, Felicia, hi, nice to meet you. And tell us a little bit about you. Hi, so nice to meet you. Thank you for having us. So my name is Felicia Rosario. I am the eldest sister of Santos Rosario, who had gone to Sarah Lawrence and was friends with Daniel. And I am one of the survivors. And I, you know, I participated in this stolen youth documentary sharing my story. And so interestingly for you, you weren't a student there. And you came to visit your brother. And so I, we definitely want to talk about that. And whatever you also feel liberty to talk about in terms of how the other people are doing, namely your, your siblings, how they're faring after this. Before I continue, I want to encourage everyone, if they haven't already seen it, to see this documentary. It is so well done. It was really, truly amazing character study and a study about control and the sort of crushing nature of it that just slowly descends on you and changes you. And changes everything about you and the slow burn of it and what you realize you have been conditioned to tolerate that you never would have otherwise. So I'm hoping we can all talk about that too. So Felicia, can we come back to you? What's this whole process been like for you just to be starting to talk about what happened? It's been kind of scary to start to actually tell people the truth about what was going on. And Larry made it impossible, really, to communicate with anyone outside. And 
if I ever said anything to anyone else about that was that he didn't like, he would quote fix it with that person and tell them, oh, that I'm having a really hard time, that there's something wrong with me, and then basically to that I would be dismissed. I was afraid about how it was going to be received, or you know, if anyone would really believe me. But with everyone's response to the article and the investigation. FBI got involved and it became a federal case that grounded me and, you know, gave me strength to be like, you know what, people do believe me and they will. And I really want to tell people what happened. I'm really glad. And the idea of not being believed, we're going to talk about that and and what that means about the listener more so than about you. And what it also says about the listener at that stage in their knowledge and development and awareness about how this can happen. Because I like to give people the benefit of the doubt if I can, that when they respond by being critical of you in some way or not believing you, what they're saying is, I don't yet understand this. And I'm just going to decide to not have to take this in as a possibility because I don't want to think it could happen to me or I don't want to think it could have ever happened already to me. But people also will sometimes use these interactions as a way to posture and do kind of a power play. Like, well, I would never have, or my family wouldn't. And you're thinking, did I ask? What? Why is this competition? First of all, okay, let's talk about your defensiveness and what's causing that. If I were doing a session with them, that's where it would go. But you have to weather that and you have to figure out how to get through those moments, kind of breathing through that, knowing you're kind of having to gauge your audience while you're finally having the courage to talk. It's a hard thing to do. That's why I often encourage people who are listening to be very kind listeners and to hold out this possibility that this could be true and this could happen and that it did happen and it has happened throughout history and it will continue to happen because you just need a certain personality style like his to make it happen. Right. Yes. I would say that, you know, just how you're asking the listeners to be kind listeners, that's where I've been coming from. You know, when I'm hearing people's reactions and responses, I'm sitting in a kind place. Like, I know that they don't know what happened to me and they don't have all the information and they're speaking from what they know from their own experience, which in this circumstance, they definitely don't know what happened to me. So it's limited. Um, and it just takes communicating, you know, and being open to having the conversation to, you know, hopefully bridge that gap. Yeah. And bridging that gap is really good. Helping the listener also go along that bridge with you and not stay on one side and, you know, wag their finger while you're on the other, but really see this is about human nature and this is about what can happen. And a lot of the times, that people will ask me, what kind of person gets involved in a cult? We could talk about that, but it really isn't one kind of person. There's one kind of person or typically one kind of person who starts a cult. And often for the people getting involved, it's more of a when and more of a situational uh, kind of a social issue and a timing issue more so than something about them. Because usually if we get down to what it is about them, it's usually the better parts of them. So there's nothing wrong with that. The trusting nature, the being open, the wanting to be introspective and grow, all the good things, right? So let's not focus on that, you know, as a problem. Those are all really good things. They can just be manipulated, but they're still really good things. 
I just want to say that I, something I've thought about in the process of doing this media and having a lot of conversations on different podcasts that are hosted by survivors, people in the community of survivors from coercive control are like the most incredible people. It's all these people who are like so smart, so empathetic, so caring. And I don't know if there's some like causative whatever, but I just, for whatever it's worth, it seems like, you know, there's a lot of people, as you're saying, who come at this with, you know, maybe a lack of grounding in the psychology or a lack of experience. And so it's confounding to them and they maybe come at it with a bit of judgment, but like in my experience, you know, obviously I love all of my friends and they're brilliant and everyone who is in this with us were like the smartest, most wonderful people I know. And then everyone I've met who's been in like anything else that's similar, I'm like, this is like the best person I've ever talked to. They're so smart. It's an amazing group of people who, you know, are living with and have survived these things. I'm really glad you bring that up. I've often said with now the thousands of former cult members that I've met and people who have been in relationships with malignant narcissists, I do that too, because it's so it's like one-on-one cults. It's a relational cult. If the controller, if the perpetrator can leave, this would be an incredible thing, incredible organization, incredible relationship, incredible group of people, good-hearted, kind, accommodating, lovely, smart. Yeah, some of the nicest people. And on this podcast over these almost five years of doing it, the nicest, kindest people who really care and were really open. And it's, yeah, very wonderful traits. Just then it means as you move forward, you need to find a way to protect them and make sure you only open them and share them with the right people. That's the learning curve here, I think, along with other things. Felisa, what were you going to say? I was going to say that precisely those qualities of being kind, brilliant, capable, amazing people, that's what the cult leader wants. Like they want competent, capable people to do their bidding. Like they don't want to be controlling somebody who's inept right like how far are they going to get so the better the person is the more they can do right and like the more good-hearted and well-intended the person is the more they can take advantage of that kindness yeah so i don't know felicia if you if he said this in front of you or if you remember it but i remember larry there are a few different instances in which he directly addressed what he was doing in a way that in retrospect is sort of amazing and at one point he i remember him talking about how the fact that we were all so intellectual was part of what made it easier for him to kind of work with our minds because the fact that you're thinking about everything so much and think trying to think through every level and every possibility allowed him to kind of lead us to create our own mazes that we got trapped in. He totally did say that. He would brag about how smart all of us were. And often to outsiders, he would say, you know, so-and-so did, you know, did this and or went to Oxford or, you know, Felicia wrote all these papers and, you know, and he would be like, oh, and they're mine. The other thing that you just made me think of was, you know how Lee in the in the series says, "What are you doing with all of these kids?" And he's and Larry goes, "I'm building an army." And for me specifically, I know that he was trying to weaponize me and like groom me for sex work, but also he wanted to weaponize my career. So use my influence and credibility as a doctor 
especially with my pedigree, to do what he wanted. Thankfully, I did not cooperate. But he definitely had a plan, a nefarious plan. But somehow, thank God, along the way, he just started crumbling and just couldn't keep it together enough to actually carry it through. Right. Two things I want to say about that. And then, Daniel, I want to hear about what you heard about the weaponizing you, using you. There are a number of people I work with who have been at many fantastic schools or have had many fantastic jobs who have gotten involved in a lot of things where they were very deeply committed. And then in retrospect, realized they were being taken advantage of. And in retrospect, realized it didn't quite come together and make sense. But that when you are bright, your brain needs to make connections. It needs to make sense of things. And that one of the things that I talked to about someone who was studying people who already kind of have a hard time understanding things and mastering things, they're used to kind of leaving things out in the open, like, well, it doesn't quite make sense. And it doesn't necessarily bother them as much because it's more of a, of a commonplace sort of occurrence. Like, well, I'm just going to leave that out there. People who are bright tend to make connections. And things do have to make sense. Things become formulaic. And if it doesn't quite come together from the deliverer of it, the recipient will say, okay, I have to have this make sense to me or I'm going to self-destruct. It's not going to feel like it's worth all of this. So I'm going to have to put it together. And then there is this Im embedded kind of formula that you've put together. That's why a lot of cult leaders and manipulators do like bright people because the bright people do a lot of the work for them, which is very interesting. And that also, when you are a certain way, you assume that what's true for you is true for other people. And if you have good intentions, and if you really are wanting to be someone who does good things in the world or wanting to teach, etc., there wouldn't be a reason for you to assume otherwise with someone who's coming across wanting to guide you, wanting you to have some sort of wonderful life. Because a lot of times, if you haven't been around that, then you don't know to detect it. Now, your antenna is going to be up big time. In fact, you'll probably overshoot <laughs> until you come back to a middle place. And let's just decide not to trust anyone until further notice, which actually might not be bad at first. But I'm wondering for you, Daniel, was he loving the fact that you were smart and you were capable? Yeah, there's like a few different things there that I want to follow up on because I can, God, I can tell you about the sort of ripples of people I encountered afterwards who reminded me of Larry and how accurate my perception of that and how I got pulled into scenarios that were not cults, but like, you know, I had kind of an abusive, toxic boss afterwards who was a pathological liar and like that, you know, so it's just weird how you get this, this sort of repetitive experience. So I'll say one of the things that I think is a, a question that comes up throughout the documentary and, and a question that a lot of people have had is like, what did Larry get out of this? What did he want? You know, and I think I'd be interested for your take, Rachel. My sense is whatever his psychology was, it like satisfied something for him to have control and power. But I think that for me, a big part of why I didn't leave so for so long, and I'm thinking about what you're saying about sort of making connections and stuff, a big part of why I didn't leave for so long was because I couldn't figure out the answer to that question. And I just thought that if I could figure out what was going on, like, I just needed an answer. Like, is this guy who he says he is or not? Is he good or bad? Is he helping me or not helping me? If I leave, am I failing out of a good thing or am I escaping a bad thing? The whole thing was predicated on black and white answers from the beginning. That was his appeal, was going from a world where 
things are chaotic and complicated to being like they're simple and they're black and white. And I believed him that things could be that simple. And the only way to leave was to be okay with not having a simple answer. Just being like, I don't know. And it's okay to not know. You know, and that was like the beginning of healing for me was just being okay with not knowing something. Yeah. So I, I say that just to address like the, what I feel like the way my brain works was doing to kind of keep me stuck for a long time. And, and I think that he very intentionally played on that and used confusion and absurdity and inconsistency to keep us all pretty off balance all the time. Yes. So all of the things that you mentioned are what manipulators do. You know, after coming across so many of them in my work, I realized that some of it is that they've learned how to do this. It's been trial and error. They've seen from sometimes a young age what's worked and what hasn't because they enjoy this and they need this. It's like their air. For others, it's part of a personality disorder. And that's why so many of them do the same sorts of things, just because they're sort of this malignant narcissist being <laughs> to a great degree that operates in a very similar way to others who have the same thing. Um, so it can seem like they've all read the same manual, but it's the same disorder. What, and sometimes they've learned from each other. I mean, there have been like, you know, L. Ron Hubbard had books on his shelf talking about Mao Zedong. And, you know, he, he learned from the masters. So sometimes they really have learned how to do it. So looking at the inconsistencies, that is going to be a carrot. You're going to wait till it makes sense. Like you said, there's also something about the intermittent gratification of it that is so disorienting, but it's so handicapping because you're going to wait. You're going to wait so you can get it right. So then he's pleased with you or at least not mad. And so with that energy, it's very much like having um, a partner or a parent like that, where you're just hoping that they're going to be okay with what you said and did, because when they're not, it's so unpleasant. And so you hope this time you'll please them, but you can't master the system because it's ever changing. <laughs> And so it'll keep you there for a very long time. And that's one of the answers to when you people get asked, why did you stay? I was sort of thinking at some point, the things I was promised were going to come true. I was thinking at some point, this would all come together in my head. And I'd realize, ah, this is why this is happening. And this is how it's going to improve my world in these exponential ways. But at the same time, you're also held to a standard in these situations that they're not, you're held to integrity and to honesty and to all the things they don't do. And so you feel like you have to keep proving yourself to this person who's never once proven themselves to you. In fact, they have proven themselves to you, but in the opposite way, over and over and over again, you get to see their true persona. You just don't necessarily want to see it because who does? It's a very difficult thing. I think the inconsistency too can be very crazy making. And then when they have you feeling like you're losing your mind, then they can go in with even more gaslighting to just make you feel dependent on them for your sanity, for safety, for everything, because you're not thinking right, quote, quote unquote. Felicia, was this how it was for you as well? That was part of it. But I think with Larry, he layered on all of the tactics. So it wasn't just one thing that he was doing. So that that inconsistency is definitely true where he's, you know, he was amazing at the beginning and was super helpful, very knowledgeable. And he actually did establish himself as someone who was truthful and of integrity and reliable and really just delivered. It was like someone that I would want to go to. 
So he establishes himself as an authority, but then after I'm, you know, I'm caught, quote unquote caught, right? Then that's when he starts to wear away at it and, you know, starts with the more of the gaslighting and the manipulation. He held the idea of life getting back to normal. That was the carrot. You know, we just have to do this and life will be back to normal. And you're going to be a great doctor and everyone's going to have great jobs and we're going to have this amazing life together. We just have to do this one thing. And then it's like, then this other thing. You, and you see in the series just, just how far it goes. So that was one thing. But then he he also, he held my family hostage to me. And what it, by that, I mean that even though he was trying to pit us against each other, I still loved them. I didn't care, but he would threaten me with hurting them, with either having them sent to jail or like destroying their lives, or even having them kill themselves. He said, I could get your siblings to kill themselves right now. I could get all of you to kill yourselves right now if I wanted to. And with all of the people that I met around him, like his network, it was DA agents police officers, lawyers, doctors, like, I felt trapped. And I felt like even if I tried to do something against him, that I would just be decimated. So that fear, so there were so many layers of fear and, you know, push pull that I mean, you know, that's why I didn't leave. It was the FBI came and got him, you know, and that's how I ended up getting away. I mean, well, I did end up walking away eventually, but physically that first step had to be the government coming and taking him away. What I think is really interesting is this idea of you just have to do one more thing and life will get back to normal, even though he was the one who made it not normal. He was going to offer these little breadcrumbs of like, you can do this and then you can have something back. And the unspoken part is you, I'm going to slowly let you potentially get back what I took from you. And you don't realize the what I took from you part. And, but you just can feel gratitude. Like, oh, good. This person's giving me a chance to get back to normal. It's like, I've, I've thought about this visual a lot and I've talked about it on the podcast that oftentimes people who do this to you come up from behind you and they knock you down. You don't see that it's them necessarily. Then they come around in front of you, reach their hand down and help you up and say, Oh, let me help you. And you're so grateful. Oh, good. I was on the ground. I don't know how I got there. Well, they knocked you down, uh, usually to a great degree, but they just want you to notice their outstretched arm to help you. And so putting the pieces together and seeing the causal relationship that they're at the root of the issues and not your cure is a really, it's a hard thing to look at. Like who was this person who could do this without having any problem doing it? When we can talk more about why people do this, there is something missing in their wiring. There's something missing in their conscience where people are sport. For them, there is something very satisfying, all too sickly satisfying to be doing this. And sometimes for people, it's that they want money out of people. And sometimes it's something, a devotion. But at the basis of it usually is just a sense of power. Can I get someone to do something just because I told them to? And can I get someone to be scared just because I made them scared? Can I get someone to make sacrifices regardless of what they're, it could be people, um, could be their sanity just because I said that the aggrandizement of the satisfaction of that 
is, I mean, that's the sick part, but that's usually at the basis of it. But that there isn't that humanity. There isn't the conscience. That's also when you start to notice that it can go right through you. Like your whole system can just feel like you've been in a car accident, like, oh, no, no, I'm now seeing this person for who they are, which is very hard. So, Daniel, I don't know if you feel like that fits for him because you know him, you knew Larry Ray, and I didn't. But what do you think? Yeah, I think that that probably describes him. He did derive definitely some kind of satisfaction from seeing what he could achieve, you know, what he could get people to do. It did feel to me often, like especially towards the end when he was sort of escalating the violence with me and the violation that he was just kind of playing, like seeing how far he could push it. Sometimes it like, especially when I was doubt for me was moving from subliminal to more conscious. I felt as if he was aware of that. And it was as if I was participating in playing his game. And it was kind of like, how much can he get me to play along in order to like bolster his power with other people, even if I'm conscious that it is not help, but is in fact like his game. Wow. Uh, The other thing I was thinking of is that the way that you were describing the way that someone like Larry kind of takes apart your life and then offers as if they're doing you a favor, they could bring you back to, you know, where you were before. I, I don't know if this is an oversimplification, but it sounds so much like how people describe addiction, you know, into like a drug that lowers your baseline. And then you just that you're drawn to it because you just want to get back to normal. The other thing I was thinking about while you, you were talking and you too, Felicia, was uh, I think a thing that people forget about is the powerful effect of sunk cost. You know, it's just like, yeah, it's so true. At a certain point, you have to look at everything behind you that happened that you did, that you let, let happen, quote unquote, that you, you know, that happened to you and say, this wasn't for good, you know, like I have to now call all of that abuse. I have to accept that that was supposedly wasted time. Like, uh, and so it has this compounding effect. It's like interest or something. The more it goes on, the harder it is to leave, the deeper the hole is that you've dug yourself. And then the last thing I'm thinking of is because Felicia, you're talking about your family and this is more just conjecture. But the thing that I thought about a lot was You know, Larry obviously had a very particular kind of obsessive relationship with Talia. And it it felt to me for a long time like he he seemed really driven to kind of punish or especially control anyone who tried to have any kind of relationship with his daughter. And so it felt to me like Santos like had the gall to date his daughter. And he was like, I'm gonna destroy your whole family, you know. Wow, interesting. What do you think about that, Felicia? That could be. I think that's definitely possible. Larry was incredibly vengeful and he held a grudge like nobody's business. So even, I don't know, Dan, if you remember, but like there was some situation with a speaker that was never returned. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) it was like, it became like a whole night affair that the speaker was never returned. Like, you know, like we have to get the, the robber to confess. It was like a quest. You know, it's funny. If you're talking about what I think you're talking about. Yeah. That, that was my speaker. <laughs> yes. It was, it was your own speaker. And it was like, they took it. Like Daniel took it. Um. So yes. But 
while you were talking and you were telling the story about people being like sport, it's totally Larry. And I can say that with confidence because early on, he sent me out to go ask the doorman to have sex with me. And I was like, I was a mess. Like, there's no, like, it was horrible. And I'm like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm, but he's like, no, you have to go do it. And he like kicked me out of the apartment basically until I came back and told him what happened with the doorman. The doorman testified in court um, against him. And I came back. I was unsuccessful, thankfully. I mean, you know, whatever. Um, and I was like, oh, you know, he didn't want to have sex with me. <laughs> and then he's like, he was laughing at me. He's like, you did it? I'm like, yeah, I did it. You told me I had to do it. He's like, I didn't think you were going to do it. Like, come on. Like, why would you go have sex with the doorman? I'm like, really, guy? Um, like, he kicked me out of the apartment. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to add to your to your analogy of the whole, like, pushing you from behind and then coming around to pick you up. So he pushes you from behind, comes around the front, and, like, says, oh, hey, let me help you. And then he calls the news and says, Hey, everybody, look, I helped this person get up. Like, how great am I? Because that's definitely what happened to me. Like, he knew I was about to take my last exam to be a licensed doctor. And he just went after me and, like, gaslit me for weeks straight until I was, like, broken. And he's like, no, you need to come here. I'm the only one that can help you. And I'm like, okay, I need help. And... He broke me and then he spent the rest of the time, quote, get trying to get me back to work, trying to make me study so I could take my exam because then he wanted to get me a new job in medicine, but then, and then make me this great doctor, very successful doctor. But then I would owe it all to him and I would be forever indebted to Larry and basically do whatever he wanted. I don't I don't think you were there, Dan, for this, but when he would get mad, he used to sit and tear my books up. Like my medical books, my textbooks. So he would be like, You're never going back to work. And I would just like take them and like rip them like page by page. And then he would come back like a week later and say, Oh, do you have the list of the books that you broke so I can buy you new ones so you can study for your test? Uh that you broke. <laughs> yes, that I that I broke. Yeah. He's a very sick person. I don't like to use the word sick because sick implies like a lack of agency somehow, you know, like when you're saying someone is ill, like and then they oh like they're just sick and they can't help it. Like he was so intentional about the hurt he caused all of us. There has to be another word for him, but I just don't have it. Oh, I'll toss out a bunch of them. You have them? Thank you, Rachel. Do you have any ideas? <laughs> well, there's some that I probably shouldn't say on the podcast. <laughs> so barring those, but he's a sociopath. I mean, he's a malignant narcissist and a sociopath. And often there's overlap, not always, but often there's a lot of overlap. He just did not care about the damage that he did. He only cared about how he felt and what he needed to feel and what he wanted to feel and what you needed to pay for that you had made him feel. And that's a sociopath's way that the world is theirs. 
And if they cause harm, they've also often created a system where you are not supposed to complain. You're not supposed to talk about what happened and you're not supposed to hold them accountable for anything they've done to you. You need to hold yourself accountable because if they did something to you, it was because of you or it was for you. But either way, they get to wipe their hands of it and walk away and not have any remorse. I mean, remorse is never part of it. They will often only have softer feelings towards themselves. They get hurt very easily, very easily, which they would never admit to. But so much of everything they do is to defend against hurt and they will hurt anyone to defend against their hurt. So it's like being a perpetual kind of enfant terrible, you know, just like this petulant, awful kid. And you just happen to be an adult and you happen to be strong or bright. So instead of having a tantrum, you have a horrible manipulation against someone as your tantrum. And so that's what was coming to mind when I was watching what he was doing and especially how violent he was with you and how violent he was to Daniel. I was curious about that, just about what that did. If we can talk about that for a moment, if that's not part of your life otherwise and not part of your history, just having that happen, having that shock to your system. What was that like, Daniel? What was that like? Because I know there's some scenes of that. Yeah. I mean, so there's a few different aspects um, if we're talking about sort of the impact of experiencing that type of violent abuse. One being that it took me a long time to conceptualize it as bad. He had so successfully built this kind of structure around it. So to me, it was like I had a feeling in my gut that was why I left, that it was bad, but I just kind of couldn't comprehend it. So I told myself that it was just, that was weird, you know, and just tried not to think about it. And then, and I was just talking to her about this the other day, the, the person I was dating, we were in Manhattan one day and I was having what I would now call like a traumatic response, which I did for a long time, just being in Manhattan, going on the subway. She's talked about how just like me taking subway rides, I would like be really scared. And it was hard for me to explain that to myself. And I was, I was like, something's wrong with me. And um, we were walking down the street and I, I guess was talking about, you know, the time I had lived in Manhattan and said something about Larry hitting me. And to me, this was very off the cuff because we had been sort of in like our version of the Marines, you know? And so it was normal and it was sort of this boot camp. And then I you know, looked over and she wasn't next to me anymore because she was a few steps back, just crying on the sidewalk in shock and sort of feeling the feeling I couldn't feel. And, you know, that was the first time I can remember starting to like open up my conceptualization of this. And then I didn't even think about the sexual violation I experienced as like sexual assault until the Me Too movement, like five years later or something, you know, I just was like, didn't know how to think of it as like a male bodied, per, you know, it's just, you're so socialized to think that you're supposed to want any sex that happens. And then Larry really reinforced that. So I just was like, it must have been okay, you know? And then the other thing on the more, I assume like chemical end, there's footage in the documentary that's maybe the most bombastic of me where he's um, hitting me with a sledgehammer and holding my tongue with pliers, you know, and the first time that I saw that footage among other footage was when I was doing trial prep with the prosecutors and the FBI, um, which was its own 
uh, intense process. It's really nothing like sitting in a room full of lawyers and they hit play on a 90 minute sex tape you didn't know was made of you. And they afford you the privilege of, uh, they're not watching the screen, but they can hear everything. But, uh, that video of him hitting me, I have, this is the only thing I can think of like this. So I have zero memory of that at all. Like there's no recognition. I, Felicia, I've heard you talk about this experience of like, feel, you know, feeling bad for her, you know, and I really feel I'm like, that's terrible what's happening to him, who's me. And I know it's me, but it's like so weird because also Larry's whole narrative was on the basis of this idea that memories could be that repressed. So for a long time, I was like, he just made all that up. That's not how memory works. And so he just used this idea of repressed memory to control us. And then I have this experience where, yeah, it's like, so that I don't, it's hard to reconcile all of that. Yeah. Felicia, what are you thinking about when you hear that? I can definitely relate to that because I had a very similar experience with the government where during COVID, so I, I was on a Zoom when they shared it, but yeah, it they played something and it was horrible. He was telling Santos and I to jump out the window and how much he would love it if we would just jump. And I was it just hit me like it hit me in the face like what had happened and I don't remember that night. You know, I was obviously there. You hear my voice on the recording, but I don't remember. And same thing with some of the other footage that they showed at trial like I don't remember the way that he beat me um especially during those times but the physical violence continued especially after we left the apartment we were in North Carolina then we went to New Jersey and by the time he got arrested he had beaten me like three weeks before my face was still black and blue like healing when he was taken and that day was just, it was absurd. I think I was, I had gotten up and he just started, he just started yelling. And then he decided to just like, just quit, like just man punch me in the face and left like these huge welts um, and then kicked me in the legs and everything. I couldn't go outside for a week because my face was so swollen. And then he sent me to, the mall to go get makeup to cover it up and by then I was really like like I can't be here anymore like I don't know how how this is gonna continue because that that physical violence like I'm not used to that I wasn't like I I didn't fight in school you know I got along with I get along with people when I meet them so I'm not I'm not used to getting into altercations or having anyone hit me and Towards the end, like every punch just like worked to shatter the illusion of him. One more thing before you go. I am so moved by Daniel and by Felicia, and by all of the other friends of theirs 
who got ensnared in Larry Ray's web. It is quite amazing, quite powerful to hear them speak. And I do remember when I was watching the docuseries before it was aired, that I was actually very happy that Larry Ray had so much hubris and grandiosity that he filmed everything he did, basically almost everything. I think to be able to kind of have as a trophy for himself and maybe to be used as a teaching tool somehow later on to these students and to others or to be thrown in their face or be used somehow against them. I wonder about people like Larry Ray and what went wrong and maybe from birth what went wrong and why there isn't that part of him that has that conscience that would stop him, that there isn't that inner voice that says this is wrong and one shouldn't do this to another person. There is something about the phrase that I used that I realized after I said it, it sounds so cold, but just this idea that for some people, taking over human beings and just human beings themselves are just considered sport. What can I do? What can I use? What strings can I pull? What parts of their heart, their confidence, their abilities can I control? Can I destroy just because? Just because I can. There's something very chilling about that kind of personality. And what I was struck by too in this conversation with Felicia and with Daniel is how much they've thought this through and they've received support, I'm sure, but also how much left there is to still understand and to still know and to still be able to get about how this can happen and who this kind of person is who would do this. There is something really nice about having done this work for so long that while I can never say I know all the answers and nor would I ever say it, even if I thought that I might have a lot of them because I am anti-hubris, especially after doing this work, there is something still nice when people say, you know what, I have no idea how this can happen or this sounds crazy and mm, I just don't get if there is any kind of explanation for something like this. And But through a lot of the information that I've gathered, really from a lot of former cult members who have been my main teachers over these many years, I sometimes have an answer. And I will often say, I know that may have, felt like a hypothetical question with no answer, but I might actually have an explanation for you about how that can happen and what kind of personality could do this to someone else. It feels nice to be able to explore it in that way with people who have suffered it. And the reason that it feels nice, I think, is because so many people feel at a loss when they leave something that has left them with their head spinning, where they really wonder what happened, and they might not have words for it, and they might not have something that feels explanatory and definitive to say about it. But then if they can kind of understand that Larry Ray is this person who does these sorts of things in a way that is at times almost identical to how other people with his personality or his personality disorder do things. And so it actually follows a much more predictable path and people in my field will notice that. Sometimes we can sort of see where a story's going, what might happen next, 
what that person might try next. And the people, unfortunately, who are his victims don't know what's going to be happening next because they're not wired this way. And the thing that happens next is usually something that blows their mind because they can't imagine someone would actually do this to someone else on purpose. There is a certain naivete that comes with, thankfully, never having experienced this before. And there is a certain kind of naivete that also thankfully comes from being a person with a conscience who would never think about doing these things to anyone else. But unfortunately, because of that, unless you study this or unless it's happened to you and you can work with someone to find out how it happened and why, you are going to be left really not being able to predict where things are going to go. When you are in a situation like this too, you're so in it. You're so into needing to survive it that you don't have the ability to step back and look at the whole scene and think, wait a minute, I may have seen this before, maybe in a movie about a sociopath, maybe in some other thing that I saw about another cult leader. You're just thinking, how do I make it through today? How do I make it through this hour, this night? How do I make it through this fight and survive? So I look forward to having you hear the second part of my conversation with Daniel and with Felicia. They are really remarkable people, as all of the people who have been involved in this who are still trying to figure it out and still suffering through it are. And I hope to be able to talk to others who have experienced something like this. Please be in contact if you would like to be able to speak or if you'd like to have this show be a place where you can tell your story in a safe way. And so for Felicia and for Daniel, we look forward to hearing more from you. And I look forward to having my audience hear more from you. Take good care. Talk to you all next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.